Good morning. If you would please open your Bibles once again to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 3, excuse me. We're way ahead of chapter 1, Philippians chapter 3. It is my supreme joy to be able to bring to you the Word of God this morning. I spoke a little bit with our pastor and he wanted me to communicate to you all that he was not eaten by a, a gator in Florida, but that him and his family have enjoyed their vacation and that he cannot wait to be back. He misses you all, and I know that you all miss him. So Philippians chapter 1, as we consider righteousness by faith this morning. I want us to read this whole section again as we did last week, starting in verse 1 of chapter 3. The Apostle Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcise the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness, which is found in the law, found blameless." But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which is from God upon faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. Not one line, not one letter, not one mark is wasted. You've inspired it all, and you've given it, graciously given it to us, so that we may know you, so that your saints may be sanctified by it. Father, would you speak to us? this morning through your Holy Spirit in ways that would be unforgettable, that we would be changed for our good and for your glory. I ask this in the name of your dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. If you were here last week, then you can recall that the premise of what Paul is saying is all based off of how sick he was. Paul was sick with the disease of legalism. Verse 1, Paul is joyful because he has indeed been made well. And then verse 2, Paul's tone changes and he warns us. Three quick, rapid-fire statements. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. And then his tone changes again in verse 3. To joy. Although there are Judaizers in the church that are mixing the law and the gospel by which Paul is telling us we ought to be careful and cautious of, He is joyful that he has been made well. And it wasn't until the Lord sovereignly intervened 
in his life and made him well that he didn't know how sick he actually was. Paul, like all of us, didn't know how sick we were until the Lord Jesus Christ came into our lives and made us well. Paul warns us of the disease of legalism. What is that exactly? Well, they mixed the law and the gospel, as I said earlier. So they said, sure, you can come to Christ, but you also have to do X, Y, Z. You also have to keep the law. You also have to do the external things. What Christ has done for you is not enough. That is essentially what they were saying. And today, I think in the larger church as a whole, that is how many Christians operate, whether they know consciously that they're doing it or not. They're just like the Judaizers, mixing the law and the gospel. Instead of coming to Christ and Christ alone and leaning on His righteousness, they defer back to their own. Paul's tone, though somber and serious in verse 2, is joyful again in verse 3. Look at verse 3. Paul says, For we are the circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. Beloved, you cannot have any confidence in yourself. Our confidence is in Christ, in Christ alone. Our righteousness, our works cannot even begin to scratch the surface of what is required for us if we are to stand before a holy God, which is perfect righteousness. Our works are nothing. They're nothing. We ought to put no confidence in the flesh. A few years ago, I had the privilege of going on a mission trip to Ecuador. And we stayed down in this little hut in the jungle. It was quite an experience. But I remember one of the things was, is when we went into the city, they told us you cannot drink their water. If you drink the water, you will die. It's filled with bacteria. And no matter what they tell you about their water, you cannot drink it. And so we were like, okay. He said, it doesn't matter how it's packaged. It doesn't matter what they say they've added to it. They don't have the tools that are necessary to purify it, to make it drinkable. And sure enough, we went down into the city, and there were people with bottled water. I mean, it it looked nice on the outside. They said, oh, it has vitamins. It has minerals in it. And though that may be true, they didn't have the tools necessary to clear it of the bacteria. It didn't matter what it looked like, what they did to that water to try to make it clean. They couldn't do it. I didn't drink that water. I'm still here. And if you were in my position, you wouldn't have drank that water either. They didn't have what was necessary to make that water pure and accessible, although they did so much to it. And if our life could be compared to that, beloved, we are so impure, unclean. It doesn't matter how we repackage ourselves, what we look like externally to the world. What we try to do ourselves, we cannot in and of ourselves make ourselves righteous, pure. It is God who does so. We cannot even come close to making ourselves clean, to making ourselves acceptable. We cannot contribute to it. That's what Paul is saying. We put no confidence in the flesh. Our boast is in Christ, in Him alone. And then that's when Paul moves to the section that we'll be looking at today, verses 4 through 11. Essentially, what Paul is saying is this. Okay, Judaizers, legalists, do you want to talk about works? You want to talk about righteousness? Here's my resume. And then stack your righteousness up to mine. 
And so I want us to look at in detail because Paul is saying a lot here that we ought to consider. Verse 4, Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. What Paul is saying is, I'm about to excel and one-up you in every area. Everything you Judaizers, you legalists, think that makes you righteous, I excel far more than you. And Paul here in the list that he's about to give us starts with the least and works to the greatest. So let's start where Paul starts with the least. Look at verse 5. Circumcised the eighth day. Now, if you know Paul, you know sometimes he can be a little sarcastic. He is not one to hold back punches or jabs against false teaching and heresy. And it's interesting that Paul calls the circumcision the least of the works, what the Judaizers were so enraptured with. What one commentator said is, the Jews' greatest source of pride is the least of righteousness. He says that he was circumcised the eighth day. What does that mean exactly? Well, God, when he established his covenant with Abraham, said that that was what had to happen on the eighth day after a child was born. So in other words, Paul says it was done by the book. It was followed to the T. Remember, Judaizers were those that mixed law and gospel. So they were circumcised way later in life. They missed the mark by several years, decades even. So Paul says, I've won up to you there. I followed the circumcision by the book, followed it to the T. You had that happen to you way later in life. So you missed the mark there. And then he moves on to the next phrase of the nation of Israel. What does he mean by that? Well, he means this, that he was a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, direct descendant. In other words, his ancestral line was unmatched. Where the Judaizers, their bloodline was mixed, his was pure. So he surpasses everyone there. The next phrase he gives us, of the tribe of Benjamin. There were 12 tribes. With the tribe of Benjamin being one of the most notable among the 12, although they weren't perfect, they received much honor from the Israelites. And the patriarch of that tribe, Benjamin, was the only one to have been born in the promised land. If you were in the tribe of Benjamin, then you had made it. That was, that was pretty good for you if you were a Jew. So he surpasses everyone there. The next phrase he gives us he says he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Again, his ancestral line was pure. They didn't intermarry like others did. He was a pure Jew, Hebrew. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. So he surpasses everyone there. And that's just the stuff Paul couldn't control. That is the least of the righteous works that Paul talks about. But that is yet what the Judaizers were so obsessed with. And again, he starts with the least and works to the greatest. And he's far surpassed everybody in the least of the righteous works. Incredible. Achievements that were out of his control. He surpasses everyone. In lineage. In bloodline. But if that's not enough to show the Judaizers how far out he has surpassed them he goes on to what he could control his personal achievements last part of verse 5 he says as to the law 
a Pharisee. What law is that? The, the Mosaic law. The law that God had given Moses to then give to the people. He was a Pharisee to that law in that he followed it perfectly externally in the Jews' eyes. Again, by the book, followed it to the T, not a rule breaker. His outward performance was impeccable. Why is this important? Because the law was everything to the Jews. If you wanted to be good with God, if you wanted to be in a right standing before Him, you had to keep it perfectly. They were legalists. They had twisted it. And Paul did. On the outside, Paul looked great. But on the inside, Paul was filthy. In Galatians chapter 1, he tells us this. Chapter 1, verse 14, this is Paul speaking. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being far more zealous for them, excuse me, far more zealous for the traditions of my fathers. So even the guys that were just like Paul, that were on the same path in life as Paul, he far surpassed them. He was more zealous than them. He was the ultimate seminarian, for lack of a better term. He was a Pharisee. He kept it to the T. Not only that, but Paul had the Pharisee of Israel to train him and instruct him. In Acts chapter 22, he tells us who that is. Acts chapter 22, verse 3. Paul says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus, Sicilia. But having been brought up in this city, having been instructed at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strictness of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. So he had the best teacher. His bloodline was pure. His ancestral line was pure. He was in the tribe of tribes. He was more zealous than anyone else in his circle. And he had the teacher training him. He had the best training. The next phrase Paul gives us. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. How so? How was Paul a persecutor of the church? He hunted down Christians. He put them to death, had them put to death, beat, and put in prison. Again, we find the accounts of this in Scripture. If you want to turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Verses 1 through 4. It says, now Saul, this is Paul before his conversion. Now Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Who is that? Stephen. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they all were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He was delivering them into prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about proclaiming the good news of the word. Paul persecuted to the church, persecuted the church to the point so much so that the church had to disperse and scatter. Acts chapter 22, verses 4 through 5. 
Paul says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering both men and women into prisons. As also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. So in other words, everybody knew who Paul was, what he did. He was good at it. All the elders knew who he was. From them I also received letters to the brothers and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. So it wasn't just in his little hometown. It was beyond. He hunted down Christians so zealous that he had them murdered, imprisoned, put to death. And he worked hard at it and was known for it. In Acts chapter 9, verse 13, But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, that is Saul, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. This is who Paul was. And he was given the right and the ability to hunt down the church and persecute them, to murder them, to imprison them and was applauded for it by the Jews, by the Pharisees. As to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. Now the second part of Philippians 3.6. And as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. Again, nothing externally about Paul's life could be said negatively of him. Paul literally had it all. Achievement-wise, his life was one gigantic achievement that no one else could come close to matching. Paul, to compare it to a sports analogy is a top athlete, 6'2", 270, all muscle, playing in the NFL with the Judaizers being these little, you know, peewee flag footballers. They, they, they had nothing compared to Paul. They couldn't even begin to hold a candle to Paul's external righteousness, all his works. But look at what Paul says in verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, that is the righteousness, external righteousness, human achievement, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. This one verse sums up what happened at his conversion. Paul with Christ having struck him down, he sees the Lord for who he is and is converted at that moment. And then he realizes that his achievements, everything he's accomplished, means nothing. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. My ancestral line doesn't matter. Doesn't matter that my bloodline is the purest of the pure. Doesn't matter that I'm in the tribe of Benjamin. My training doesn't matter. My zealous works, no good. I have counted or credited everything as loss. Null and void for the sake of Christ. More than that, verse 8, I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. More than that, Highly emphatic in the Greek. I count all things 
So now Paul is going beyond what he couldn't control. His bloodline, his lineage, lineage, his lineage, his moral achievements. He goes beyond that. He says, I count all things. Everything else about Paul, his family, his friends, his relationships, his wealth, his social status, his reputation among the Pharisees, all things as loss. So that I may know Christ for the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Beloved, why are you a Christian? Why are you a Christian? Why did you become a Christian? I'm not asking for a theological answer to how you became a Christian. Ultimately, we are Christians because God chose us for for ordained to save us, regenerated us in his time. And though that is true, that is not what Paul says here. Paul says he has abandoned everything. And he had it all according to the world standards, did he not? But Paul says he has abandoned everything because knowing Christ is so much more valuable than anything this world has to offer. Precious Jesus is worth so much more than wealth, social status, fame, Knowing Christ as Lord and Savior is more valuable than having it all. Is that why you're a Christian? Because you can identify, you can identify with Paul and say, yes, Christ is more valuable to me than anything. Beloved, coming to Christ is costly. In fact, it'll cost you Everything. Consider the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19, if you want to turn there. Matthew chapter 19. Jesus has just blessed the children. And after that, in verse 16 says, and behold, someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And he, being Jesus, said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? He's just like the Pharisees, the Jews externally. Yeah, I've kept that. I look good on the outside. I've done that. In verse 21, Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when his disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You see, the rich young ruler, like the Judaizers, like the Pharisees, were thinking, What must I do? What good thing must I do? It's all about self. It's all about doing external 
things. The rich young ruler said he kept it. When in actuality, he had broken all parts of the law. That's what James says in James 2.9. Where you break one part, you break all. It's not so much externally as it is internally. Our Lord even tells us, if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery. But they were so concerned with the external things. It was all about what good thing must I do? And Jesus tells the young ruler exactly what he knows will turn him away from him. He says, give up everything. Sell your possessions. Give it all away and follow me. And the young ruler wasn't outwardly going to give up anything because inwardly he hadn't given up his own self-righteousness. His works. Christ was of no value to him. That's why I'm very cautious of everyone who professes faith in Christ sometimes. Because I often look at the way in which they live, what their hope is in, what they say their hope is in, And I just want to ask them, okay, how much has it cost you to follow Christ? Following Christ costs you something. I often wonder by the way they live and the things they say if Christ is of any value to them. Churches so often cheapen the gospel to make it more palatable to a sinful and unholy world. They offer a gospel that costs them nothing. Come as you are. Leave as you were. Jesus is your homie, your genie in a bottle. He'll do any and everything for you. You don't have to do anything. Following Christ doesn't cost you anything. And so therefore they lessen the gospel. But to come to Christ, you have to completely abandon everything. If that's what Christ calls for, and he does, the question they ask before coming to Christ is, well, what is it going to cost me? That's how we're so programmed to think. You want a new iPhone? Well, what's it going to cost me? Want a new car? Well, what is it going to cost me? And if people were honest or just looked at their Bibles, it's not hard to tell that it will cost you everything, beloved. It'll cost you everything to follow Christ. Luke chapter 14. Verses 25 through 27. Now many crowds were going along with Christ. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Now, is Christ calling us to hate our families? No. What Christ is calling us for to do is to be willing to give up anything it takes to follow him. And what it takes is everything. It's costly to follow 
Christ. The question should not be, what will it cost me to come to Christ? That's the wrong way to look at it. Rather, the question should be, what will it cost me if I don't come to Christ? And the cost is way too high. You don't get Christ. You don't get salvation. Coming to Christ will cost you everything. Beloved, what has it cost you? What have you given up and abandoned to follow Christ? Are you sure you know him? Can you identify with Paul and say, yes, everything in my life, if I have to give it up, I will count it all as loss because knowing Christ is more valuable to me. Verse 8, Philippians chapter 3. More than that, I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Second part. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. I haven't just abandoned everything about me and who I am. I haven't just abandoned it all, but I consider all those things rubbish compared to Christ. Knowing him, rubbish here translates more rightly dung, manure, excrement. Everything compared to Christ is trash, it's worthless, it's manure. So that I may gain Christ. Having Jesus. Knowing Jesus. Is worth more than anything this world has to offer beloved. Christ is so much more precious and valuable than anything. That's why I love the old hymns I'd rather have Jesus. When I preach, I just cannot, hymns always flood my mind because they are so in tune with Scripture. I'm convinced Paul wrote, I'd rather have Jesus. Someone just stole it and put their name on it. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold, than men's applause, than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world could afford today. Is that your life? Can you say that that is the anthem of your life? That knowing Christ is worth more than anything? Do you know him that well that you can say, yes, everything else is garbage and rubbish compared to Christ? Whatever it costs, it's all worthless compared to knowing and having him. To know Christ is to have Christ. No one who knows Christ does not also possess him. Anyone whom Christ revealed himself to is saved. So it's not just getting Christ. You get Everything in Him. You get His righteousness. That's why Paul says in verse 3, our boast is in Christ. We don't put any confidence in the flesh. It's all in Christ. Because we get His righteousness. Paul says, everything I've worked for my entire life will never even come close to being good enough to stand before a holy God. It's dung. It's manure. Rather, everything I need has been accomplished by Christ. Look at verse 9. 
and to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God upon faith. His righteousness, Christ, everything good He did is credited to my account by faith. What is faith? It is the constant ever-confessing belief that Christ is who He is and in what He has done. We are justified and made right before a holy God, not because of anything we do, but because of what Christ has done. And by having faith in Him, that righteousness is Credited it to our account. Incredible. We cannot do anything. Your righteousness will never get you there. Paul surpasses it all. Everyone. And if his righteousness doesn't come close, what does that make ours? This perfect righteousness that is needed beloved God has required through His Son. What joy that should cause in us. Rejoice in the Lord. Be glad in Him. The debt has been paid and the victory has been won. The Lord is our salvation. What grace and mercy is found in Christ that we cannot even begin to do anything to be righteous. But yet that righteous is completely and fully credited to our account and never taken away by faith and faith alone in Him. In the righteousness that is credited to our account is more than enough. Abundantly Enough, we cannot even begin to comprehend the gift that is Christ's righteousness to us by faith. Your works won't get you there. What an incomprehensible truth that just by faith in Christ we get. All of Christ's righteousness. Unbelievable. You may say, well, you you don't know what I've done. My past is pretty marred. I'm I'm a great sinner. Join the club. We all are. But Christ is a great Savior. So often we revert back, as I said last week. We, we try to do things. Surely there's something I have to do. Surely I, I got to do something to make, put myself in a right standing. Surely I have to add upon. But it's like our brother Larry prayed at the beginning of the service. There's nothing to improve upon. Christ has done it all. His righteousness is, is complete and perfect. Consider what Paul says. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 12, Paul tells Timothy, I am grateful to Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he regarded me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor, And a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy saying in deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, 
among whom I am foremost. Yet for this reason I was shown mercy so that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Christ Jesus might demonstrate all his patience as an example for those who are going to believe upon him for eternal life. If God can save Paul, a vile blasphemer, murderer, he can save anyone. If Christ's righteousness is more than abundant, as Paul says, to cover him, it's more than abundant for you, beloved. Stop trusting in yourself and put your trust in Christ and His righteousness. Christ came into the world to save sinners, to fulfill the righteousness that is required for those whom He foreknew before the foundation of the world so that we would be holy and blameless in Him, Ephesians 1. It is God's doing that we are saved, that the righteousness we have is through Christ. And what has enabled that to happen is the glorious cross of Christ. Where Jesus paid the debt. Where he said, it is finished. What he came to do was done. He has fulfilled the righteousness that is required for us to stand before him, holy and blameless. He has paid the debt you owed to God. What mercy. What grace is that not? It is found in Christ. It is all Christ. We don't boast in the flesh. We can't improve upon what has already been done perfectly by an infinite, righteous God. Just have faith. Faith in Christ and Him alone. There's nothing you can do. Christ came to die for sinners. He doesn't save the lovely, the self-righteous, those who externally display to the world, I have it all together, look at me. Christ came to save the lost and the broken, the sick and the dying. Turn in your Bibles real quick. I can't help but go there. 1 Corinthians 1. Corinthians 1. Chapter 1, verse 25, Paul tells us this. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For for consider your calling, brothers, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish Things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised things God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may abolish the things that are so that no flesh may boast before God. Verse 30, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that just at is is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. God has not saved the self-righteous, but the things, the, the least of the world. He says, he says, consider your calling. There's not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble. I mean, look around here for a second. Do you see any mighty, any noble, any wise? No. But God has chosen the weak and the despised to shame the wisdom of the world. God reached down to the bottom of the barrel and saved us so that the righteousness, sanctification, and redemption which comes through faith 
that we may praise God so that nobody, he says, can boast in the flesh. But just as it is written, let those who boast, boast in the Lord. Our boast is in Christ. Do you understand? The wisdom of this world says, God, look how good I am. Look at all the good I do. And Paul says here, your good is nothing. Your righteousness won't get there. Your works won't get you there. It's rubbish. It's manure. The only righteousness you get is one that is undeserved. That was accomplished by a Savior who ever loves and intercedes for you. The great high prophet, priest, and king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, when the world attempts you to look at yourself, look to Christ. Boast in him. We just sang about it, did we not? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end for all my sin. We don't look to ourselves and think, oh, oh what, 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 what can I do? You can't do anything. It's all been accomplished by Christ, his righteousness, and it is credited to your account by faith and faith alone. Verse 10 of Philippians 3. So that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. What a glorious thing. We get his righteousness. We know him. That resurrection power resides in us. That is the Holy Spirit. We get to suffer just as Christ suffered, being conformed to his death. What a glorious truth, is it not? It is righteousness by faith in faith alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that everything you have required, you have provided through your Son. There's nothing we can do to earn it. There's nothing we can do to maintain it. There's nothing we can do to put ourselves in a right standing to receive it. But it is only by faith. The constant, ever-confessing belief that Christ is who he says he is. That he did everything that he did. That he paid the debt that he fulfilled what was required. May we all have faith like that, Lord. It says I'm not trusting in myself. I'm not trusting in my works or anything else. I have abandoned it all to know Christ because knowing him is worth more than anything. May that be true of all of us. And if there be anyone here, Lord, who doesn't know you, would you save them this very hour for their good and your glory. In Christ's name, amen.